Well, I hope your heart is hungry, or at least that you recognize how hungry your heart is, uh, because by the end of this gathering, um, we're going to be coming to this communion table and taking in elements that are symbolic of what our hearts are longing for, and we'd be able to internalize those uh, realities in a very physical way here today uh, that points to our spiritual need, and so thank you, worship team, for reminding us of these amazing things um, as we continue on in our series in the Gospel of Mark. Um, I'd like to um, just pause and pray for a moment, and then we'll get into the text. And God, we pray that, um, that as we enter in this time that we would recognize our need, um, that we're in desperate need of, of, of grace. We just sang about that, and I pray that it would um, rattle around in our hearts and in our minds for a moment that we are desperately in need of grace and so, God, we come to you. We come to the throne of grace to find uh, freedom that we so desperately need and mercy, uh, giving things that we don't deserve. And so, God, I pray that uh, even in our time now as we open up your scriptures and as we pray again later on after we read your scriptures that you would add a blessing um, to those who desire to learn from you this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, many of you know that I went to school in Chicago um, at a place called Moody Bible Institute. It's right downtown Chicago. Like, it's so awesome. Some of you from Lynn are like, how could you say that, right? You know, it's awesome. Um, I, took my, I took a couple buddies uh, to a conference in Indianapolis, and we were just kind of in awe as we walked around the buildings in downtown Chicago. Uh, just it's amazing. It's a clean city. And Moody Bible Institute is on the corner of LaSalle and Chicago. It's like right there in the heart of the city, and Moody Church is about one mile north of Moody Institute, the campus. And so you have Moody Bible, the Institute, and then you have Moody Bible Church, which is about a mile away north. And here's my back in my day story, okay? So back in my day, Moody Founders Week was in February. Now, if you know anything about Chicago, and if you know anything about February, February in Chicago is not a pleasant experience. It is just brutally, brutally cold, and Moody's Founders Week was held at Moody Church while all the students lived at Moody Bible Institute a mile south of the church. And so twice a day, you had to make the decision, and am I going to literally, maybe, potentially freeze to death waiting in line for a bus to take me there, or do I just brave the elements and keep myself warm by walking that mile twice a day in the midst of, uh, you know, whatever might be happening in February in Chicago. And uh, so that was the My Day story. Now, uh, sadly, Moody Founders Week is in October now. I'm just like, come on, man. Like, you got to kind of, you got to earn your keep there as a student. You know, back in my day, it was it wasn't for lightweights. You had to make it down to campus in February, but now it's in October. Um, and I tell you all of this not to get any sympathy, uh, but by far the reason I tell you this is by far the best sermon, the most impactful sermon that I have ever heard, ever preached, took place on the evening of February 2nd in the year 2000. That night, a man by the name of E.K. Bailey walked up on stage. He paused behind the pulpit he surveyed the crowd, and then he said, My name is Hosea. My profession is prophet of the Lord 
Jehovah. And then for the next 30 minutes, this African-American preacher chronicled from a first-person narrative perspective the entire story of Hosea. And every single moment was just arresting. Like, you're just looking around like, what, what are we witnessing here? It was amazing. And someday I'm going to actually take a crack at sharing it with this congregation. When I do, I know that I won't be able to do the presentation justice, but the message, even without the believable presentation, will prove inspiring. I know that I won't be able to replicate the experience, but I'll try. It was such a popular sermon, and a lot of people had tried to replicate that narrative um, in preaching classes. So here's the funny story, the back-in-my-day story. Later on that semester, I was in a preaching class, and we had a first-person narrative segment where we had to preach from a first-person perspective something from the scriptures. And we were in the book of Joshua, and it was Joshua chapter 2, and there was a story of Rahab and the spies. And we could pick any character, and we had this one guy in our class that opened up. This, this is right on the heels of Founders Week. Got up in front of the class, stood up in front of everybody, surveyed the crowd, and said, My name is Rahab. <laughs> and there's like this immediate disconnect, you know? As hard as we try to imagine this 30-year-old, you know, balding yet scruffily bearded man as a prostitute from a pagan nation, we just couldn't do it, right? We're like, oh, yeah. And it was so funny because when you're preaching in class, it's like really hard because you're critiqued like immediately, right? And the professor emerged and said something like, you are Rahab, you know, uh, you could have picked anybody from the story, and you chose Rahab. The, you played it as a bald, bearded man, right? I was like, oh, my goodness. Um, but the reason I, I share this is because the preaching of God's word is very powerful and effective. When God's word is studied and correctly interpreted, creatively crafted, and then presented with practical points of application, this word will change you. It will. It is powerful, it's effective, and it will accomplish what it was meant to do and sent out to do. And so that night, I was pleased with the preaching of E.K. Bailey that night, but I was in awe of the God whose unfailing love to a faithless people was on display. The story of Hosea and Gomer was merely a shadow of the greater reality of the unfailing faithful love offered to a faithless person like me in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at the end of that night, I was blown away by God. I was captivated by him. And that's actually exactly what we see taking place in our text today. People were blown away and captivated by the words pouring out of the mouth of the one who was the word made flesh and who was dwelling among them. The people hearing this message were amazed but the irony of this, this small little section is that although the people were amazed at what they heard, the only characters that obeyed what was said were unclean spirits. Whoa. And we're going to get to that more next week. We're going to be in this passage a couple weeks. And starting today in our text and then all throughout the Gospel of Mark, we are going to witness people in awe of the unprecedented power of Jesus as he powerfully preached about the kingdom of God that he said was at hand. And those that heard Jesus preach were in awe of him and his message. His preaching left people perplexed, 
puzzled. Some people were aghast, like, how dare he say that? And yet some people were receptive and responsive. Regardless of the reaction, everyone who heard him preach was awestruck and astounded by his authority. But here's the thing. You can be amazed by something and yet unchanged by it. Your amazement and your wonder need to impact your belief and then your subsequent actions. So maybe you're here today. Maybe you've heard a message in student ministry or maybe Awana or Sunday school or maybe even here at this gathering and maybe you were amazed or blessed. Maybe you were encouraged and possibly challenged. Maybe you even told somebody else that you thought the message was great or wonderful. But upon leaving here, you were essentially still unchanged. And we can have all sorts of feelings show themselves in response to a public message, but those feelings alone will never result in change unless we are convinced that what we heard was true. We must believe, and then that belief will have a direct impact on the course of our future actions. So now John the Baptist was a good preacher. He was a sight to behold, and many, many people went out into the desert to behold him. In order to see him, they had to go out into the desert. But in our passage today, we're going to see Jesus walking right into the city on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, striding right into its synagogue and amazing people with the words that came out of his mouth. The one who was mightier than John walked into Capernaum, the small, very normal, rough-around-the-edges fishing community that had a synagogue, and he began his public ministry on the Sabbath and demonstrated the raw power of the kingdom of God by using his words. The primacy of preaching and teaching in Jesus' public ministry cannot be undervalued or overlooked. Jesus himself said to his disciples, hey, let's go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And what we're going to need to see today in the text is that the reign of God demonstrates its power when we actually obey what the teacher has taught us. You might have a lot of feelings about messages but unless we combine that with belief and obedience, then we'll never see the reign of God on display in our lives. The reign of God demonstrates its power when we obey what the teacher has taught. We must hear and be amazed by what Jesus has said, but then we must unite it with faith and act on what he has said for it to be personally effective in our lives. The author of Hebrews once told his initial audience this, for the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So you can be in awe of the Messiah's teachings. Everyone that we're going to read in the book was. And at the same time, you can be in awe of his teachings and still hold him at arm's length and never be pressed into his mold, so to speak, to be like him. 
So this is all precursor to what we're going to read in Mark chapter 1. Let's go ahead and open up the text. It'll be on the screen as well. We'll be in this passage for at least two weeks. And this is what Mark records for us in chapter 1, verse 21. And they, this is Jesus and these first four followers, and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed So that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all of the surrounding region of Galilee. First of all, woe. Second of all, Let's pray. God, this is a passage that, wow, we see power, we see authority in words and in actions. And a lot of questions that we have here, and in part one or part two or part three, however many times it takes us to get through this passage, I pray that you would be our teacher and our guide. God, we think that you are just so gracious to us to give us these words that are the words of eternal life. And so, God, I pray that we would be able to see them and discern from them what it is you have for us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As was mentioned, this will probably be like one of those one-part, two-part, possibly three-part sermons as we get into this text. And I just want to really start with the first two verses of this section. This is what it says. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So there's a whole bunch of observations that we need to make here together. He goes into Capernaum on the Sabbath, he enters the synagogue, and he starts teaching. There's so much to say. And multiple times in this gospel, we're going to see that Jesus does some pretty amazing things in synagogues. So it's going to be good for us to understand as we start this study in the Gospel of Mark what the synagogue is and its function within the culture of the time. Pastoral intern Shane Hamstra was able to lead our hymn sing event this past week, and he brought up that word synagogue. He told us that that word synagogue is formed from two words, ago meaning to lead or to bring along, and then the preposition soon meaning together. So soon ago It means to gather in or to collect or to assemble people together. That's what the synagogue was for. Now you can gather and you can assemble really anywhere. You don't need to be surrounded by four walls and a roof. You can gather even if there isn't a structure in place. But for all practical purposes, 
synagogues, these physical buildings, were erected and peppered all throughout the land of Israel for the purpose of gathering in those who had a shared, common Jewish heritage. It was a place to go. The synagogue was not the temple. There was no altar there. There was no sacrifices taking place in these buildings. But they were a major focal point for not only the religious life, like the teaching of the Torah, but also was a place where the community could gather together around their own to support both the spiritual and the physical needs within the community. That is why we will see so many healings taking place in the synagogues and the Gospels, because it was designed to be a place where people could go and hopefully get some assistance and help from the broader community. So Jesus walks right into the religious and the social center of the community in Capernaum, and he opens his mouth to start teaching, but we, the readers of Mark's gospel, have no idea what he says. We're not given the discourse like you'd see like in Matthew or Mark, or Matthew or Luke or John, right? We don't, it's just, it just says, he was teaching, period. And we don't know what he was teaching on. But we can discern its shock, value, and power by reading the demeanor of those who were privy to the words that came out of his mouth. What did they look like? Well, Mark says that they were utterly astounded and amazed. The word that he uses to describe their reaction to the teaching of the Messiah was the idea of becoming astounded to such a degree as to nearly lose one's mental composure. It's like mind-blowing, mind-exploding. So everybody pay careful attention. I'm going to do a magic trick for you. Ready? Ready? Pay careful attention. See if I do it right. Ready? Ready? Anybody had their minds blown yet? Right? No, that's not what happened. Like, these people, they're like, what? Did you hear that? Do you know what that means? I don't know what that means. What does it mean? My mind is blown. I'm about ready to lose my mental composure. That's what Mark says to those who heard the words of Jesus. So here we have the very normal, very common, run-of-the-mill, small village people that were gathered on the normal day, as was their custom for thousands of years, all of a sudden, having their minds blown away by what Jesus was saying and probably the way in which he said it. The response of the people was basically, it hasn't been done like that before. What was said was said with authority. So what could this mean? What words might have been used? 
what was the delivery like? And we don't know what he said that day or what it sounded like in the synagogue that day. But here's the thing. We already know what has already come out of the mouth of Jesus in this gospel already. The words that have already come out of the mouth of Jesus so far are found in the previous section, primarily verses 15 and 17. And this is what Jesus said when he walked into Galilee. He said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then he's passing along the Sea of Galilee and he sees these guys and he says to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. So here we have the one who possessed all sovereign authority saying, repent. In the imperatival form, imperatives in Greek were volitional commands and exhortations, meaning we must engage our wills and our volition. And in this case, the word repent means to exercise your will to change from the way that you have been going. Essentially, there's something wrong with the way you're doing your humanity, so stop it. And turn around. Engage your will. Use your volition and change. And then believe. Which is synonymous with this idea of trust or putting your faith in something. We just talked about that at our equipping hour. Faith, belief, trust. When the biblical authors use that, it's kind of like a, a, it kind of all encapsulates this same idea of believing. Once again, it's in the imperative form as well. It's a volitional command and an exhortation to take your faith and then to put it in something. So change, then turn around, take your faith that you had as you were going the wrong way and take that and put it in something else. So that begs two questions. What is faith and what should I put it in? And so, there's a beautiful album called Worthy and it's by a band called Beautiful Eulogy and they have a track on their album where they cut in a sermon of Art Azurdia and it's just this beautiful where he asks the question, what is authentic faith? And this is what he says, the cultivation of an optimistic outlook on life with some kind of spirituality attached to it? Is it just a holy hoping for the best? Is this how you think of faith? Authentic faith is the confidence, assurance in things and events not yet seen. Faith is not a call to believe in things when common sense doesn't tell you to, right? Faith is not a mindless stab in the dark. It's not a crossing of the fingers and a hoping for the best. It's not a leap into apparent nothingness. That's how the world defines faith sometimes. He says it's a word that speaks Faith is reasoned, careful, deliberate, intentional thought. Well, thought upon what? God and his promises. He goes on to say, if you are absolutely gripped by the coming realities that have been promised to you by God, 
then how you live in your life in the present will be radically different than if you did not possess that certainty. That is what authentic faith is, my friends. Positive certainty expressed in action. Authentic faith is not merely believing in God, it's believing God. Taking God at his word, living in obedience to his revelation, whatever the cost, because you know deep down in your bones that God will always do what he says, that his speaking is his doing. It is an abiding assurance in God and his promises that animates you to persevere in your obedience to him. Do you wish to be a more consistent, obedient Steadily persevering Christian, a stronger Christian, a more courageous and outspoken Christian, then you need to strengthen your faith. Your faith instinctively strengthens in direct proportion to the expansion of the object of your faith. If you expand your understanding of the object of your faith, then faith itself will obediently follow. The object of your faith, if indeed you are a Christian, is Jesus Christ and all that he promises. So is your faith weak? It's owing to the fact that you don't know the object of your faith well enough. And here's the kicker. But when Jesus Christ becomes progressively bigger, or better yet, your understanding of who he actually is progressively conforms to the reality, your faith will become increasingly stronger. But how does that happen? By immersing yourself in the faith-arousing word of God. In biblical counseling, when we train and when we meet with people, we define faith like this. Faith is believing the word of God and acting on it no matter how you feel, knowing that God promises a good result. That's faith. It's belief and it's action. Not based off of your feelings, but based off of what God has said. So Jesus shows up and says, repent and put your faith in something. What thing? And he says, the gospel. The good news of the victory over the counterfeit lowercase k kingdom of Satan. The kingdom of God has arrived because the king had arrived, and it was going to be evident in his powerful preaching that amazed people. We will see that what Jesus says throughout this gospel brings about healing. And we're going to see it time and time again that new life is made available or restored life is made available for people to apprehend by faith by believing what he has said. And he will use words and then he's going to demand that demons and diseases and even wind and waves obey him and that is what the disciples must do as well. Believe what he is teaching. So his good news is going to be on display all throughout this gospel account. And so this is what he has said so far. He said, repent, believe in the gospel, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. We don't know what he said in the synagogue that day, but we know what he said as he was entering into it before he went in there. He says, come after me. And I will remake you 
into competent vessels that can bring others into this kingdom of mine that is now at hand. He says, I will make you fishers of men. And I mentioned this in the benediction prayer last week. That phrase is way, way, way more than just a cute, catchy zinger of a play on words. This is Jesus teaching in a new, authoritative, masterful, informed, and brilliant way. How so? Well, that phrase, fishers of men, is loaded with meaning in a first century Jewish mind because it reminded them of the words of the exilic prophets. Primarily, Jeremiah, Amos, Hezekiah, and Ezekiel. These are men that wrote during a time of great turmoil and unrest and exile. And so Jeremiah, let's just take him for example. He says in Jeremiah 16, 14, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord who lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. What we see here is, track this, this is referring to the first Exodus event that brought freedom, initial freedom to the people of God. And Jeremiah says, there's going to be a day where we're not going to be talking about that necessarily. He says, there's going to be a day coming when we will think, yeah, that was pretty cool that God worked wonders for us long ago. But there will be a day when God does something new. And so Jeremiah changes the phrase a little bit in the very next verse from past tense to present tense. And he actually utilizes the future tense where he says this in verse 15. But as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. So here's the thing. We have to ask ourselves the question, what are God's people doing in foreign countries to the north and a whole bunch of other countries that surrounded them? after they were initially brought into land long, long ago, after the first exodus. Why are they out there now? Well, those countries like Babylon and all the others were used by God to execute judgment on his people because of their covenant rebellion. Jeremiah says, look, God had driven them out. God had driven his people, the people of Israel, into different lands. But, hold on, there will be a time that was coming when he would bring them back. God's people had been unfaithful to the Lord. Covenant rebellion against the God who brought them in. They worshiped other gods. They failed to obey God's word. They refused to listen to him. And as a result, they would soon be overthrown by the Babylonians. And many Israelites would be forced into exile. However, in time, Jeremiah says God would bring his people back. But in the meantime, judgment will have to come. And you know what that judgment will look like? Verse 16, he says this, Behold, 
which is a strong interjection. It can be translated, but now. But now, behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterwards I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rock. So here we have a fishing and hunting metaphor that is utilized to make sure that no Israelite would escape the judgment of God that they had personally deserved. If you are guilty, you're going to get caught. You will be fished out for judgment. A hook will be placed in your mouth and it will drag you away to death. If you have rebelled, you will be hunted down no matter where you are and you will pay for that rebellion. And the fishing metaphor was used repeatedly by the exilic prophets. It was used to communicate that judgment was coming The hook will be placed in your mouth, and the guilty would not go unpunished. So Ezekiel uses it, Amos utilizes it, Habakkuk threatened with it, and so does Jeremiah. So here's the thing. The last time this metaphor was used, it threatened and warned of a judgment that was coming. But we know from the rest of the reading of the prophet Jeremiah that the judgment that left Israel in exile and their eventual restoration isn't just about restoration to a people, to a land. It's about the restoration to God himself. The greater message of Jeremiah doesn't focus on the old covenant. It anticipates the new one coming. Look at how Jeremiah writes in 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I had made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Listen, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So the Jewish people knew these scriptures. They knew them way better than we do. And Jeremiah was not just talking about land for people to occupy. He was talking about how a sinful, guilty people deserving God's judgment could be brought back and be able to dwell within the presence of the Holy One of Israel. It would only occur if God had cleansed them from all of their guilt that they had accumulated for sinning against him And if God forgave their sin and rebellion, that's the only way. And get this, Jesus shows up with decisive authority and says, there's a way. There's a way in which God will cleanse people from their guilt. There's a way for God to forgive all of our sins and rebellion. How? Well, you must repent and believe in the gospel that I am proclaiming to you. 
That time has come. The time of God's ultimate promised deliverance has begun. A greater exodus event is available to you now. A better return from exile is here. And get this, the fishing metaphor that was once used to communicate and execute God's judgment has been rebranded by Jesus into a compelling invitation to enter into the kingdom of God that he brought about through the good news that he was proclaiming. And it's like, oh, the judgment's been poured out, or it will be poured out on me. There's a way to be cleansed from all of your unrighteousness and forgiveness that can be granted to you because your judgment will be poured out on me. That's good news. Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel. Follow me. And as you spend time with me, over time, I will remake you into competent vessels that can bring others into this kingdom of mine. I will make you fishers of men. Meaning, go catch people and tell them, not that judgment is coming, but that judgment has come on me. And that forgiveness has been made available to them instead of judgment. Go fish for people. The disciples of Jesus were commissioned from the inception of their journey with Jesus to seek people out so as to catch them, so to speak, for the kingdom. This was their new identity as they followed in the footsteps of the one who came to seek and save that which was lost and was in danger of judgment. And he's going to come snatch them. They were, these disciples, and all of us who follow Jesus are fishers of men. We are part of this great new exodus from our former enslavement. We are a part of a better return from exile. And the kingdom of God had arrived because the king had arrived. And we have become his loyal subjects. And guess what? We want his kingdom to expand. And we want them to join in the mission as well. So Jesus says, pull them in. Lure them in with this attractive offer. They're not just going to come jumping into the boat. You got to go cast the net. You got to go looking for them. Go seek them out. Do as I have done when I came walking along the Sea of Galilee looking for you and making you an offer of a lifetime to be my disciple. Go fish for others. That is what Jesus said. And that's what I am attempting to authoritatively announce with all the passion I can muster up here today because the good news is that the accumulated debt of your sin can be forgiven. It's available for those who repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I've been sent here by the king of the kingdom himself to fish for you. I am one of his followers. I am one of his fishermen. I've been sent here to fish. And now as we transition into a time of remembrance and communion, let me bait the hook 
with the most amazing news ever that's symbolized here. Please, please, as I dangle these elements out in front of you, take the bait. Judgment has been poured out already. And forgiveness is available for you. The fact that we get to eat this meal gives evidence to the stunning reality that our God actually knows what we go through on a day-to-day basis. I love the verse that Ange was able to read for us, that we can go to his throne of grace. He's walked every proverbial mile that you and I have walked. Our God took on flesh and dwelt among us. And when he did that, it set him on a collision course to experience the suffering that we experienced. He willingly entered our story. He was despised, rejected, mocked, bludgeoned, abandoned, handed over to an excruciating, agonizing, lonely death on a cross. The symbolism of this sacred meal cannot be lost or left behind by us today. Our God freely embraced bodily pain, mental suffering, spiritual abandonment, so that we would not ultimately have to. So here at Faith Community Church, we have what we call an open communion table. That means for all of those of you who have put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, you're so very welcome to participate with us in two simple elements of the bread and the cup. The bread representing the body of Christ that was broken for us so that yours didn't have to be, and the cup which represents the shed blood of Christ in full payment of our sin. Parents, if you have children with you here today, please make sure they understand the gospel and they've made a profession of faith in Jesus. It doesn't make sense for them or really for any of us here to participate in something that we don't understand or even believe in. So it would be much better for them to wait until a future time when they can take part in a meaningful way. And for all of us here, this isn't just some religious thing we do once a month. It comes with an admonition that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He says this, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself and let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let him do that. Do this. But make sure you're doing it in a way that's, that's right, consistent. This is a meal of remembrance and a meal of great anticipation. I've said this before that the Lord's Supper is a great antidote for the toxic individualism of our day, right? As we share in these elements today, we're mainly individuals becoming one body, bringing and bearing each other's burdens and heartaches and multiplying each other's joys together. This meal was at one time in church history called the medicine of heaven. (laughs) This is exactly what you need to survive but we have to do this meal in right standing with God and our brothers and sisters in Christ as well. So if you have something that's standing between you and God right now, make it right through confession, admitting your shortcomings, and then repent and believe in the judgment that's been poured out for you, symbolizing these elements so that you, you, you can come near. You can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace to receive what you need. So right now, through confession and repentance, make that right. If you have something that is standing between you and a brother and sister in Christ right now, make it right, right now. 
choose to overlook that offense or to forgive the offense from your heart knowing that the sacrifice of Jesus atoned for all of your sin and their sin and that's what we want to remember now. And we also eat with great anticipation when our earthly pilgrimage, our earthly journey is done in glory, we're also going to enjoy an ongoing feast with all of those who have preceded us in death together as we enjoy the eternal union of God and those purchased by his sacrifice. But it hasn't happened yet. And in the meantime, we continually pray, pray, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. And this is given to us to remember the means by which we can relate with our God. So at this time, I'm gonna invite the elders and a few deacons to come forward to serve. And as they come, please take this time of preparation to be in prayer, examining your own heart before God and seeking his forgiveness and deliverance. So please note this carefully. If you've tuned me out for a moment, pay attention for a second. Please note that as these are passed, both elements are contained in two cups that are stacked one on top of the other. Make sure you grab both cups as the plates are passed by. Then please hold both elements in your hand as you're served, and then we will eat together and drink together as I lead us through that time. So at this time, renew your commitments to him. Remember his sacrifice with thanksgiving, the Lamb of God who paid for all of our sins once and for all.